Hello, welcome to You Don't Know Mojack. My name's Ryan. My name's Brent. And this episode, we're discussing SST 239, the Trotsky Ice Pick Poison Summer LP. I feel like Trotsky Ice Pick has been just a constant presence on the show because it comes up so often. But this week, in particular, Brent, is very special to us because of our guest. Yeah, we've got Vetus Matare on the show. Yeah, I also feel like Vetus has always kind of been part of the Mojack family. He's always been so supportive, always hooking us up. And it's so meaningful to us when we have someone like Vetus who helps us out like that. And it's about time that we make it official and have Vetus on the show so he's, you know, fully part of the Mojack family. Yeah, big time. So awesome. Before we get into it, though, Brant, why don't you hit us with some spiels? Okay, I've got (laughs) the next section of my, like, alphabetical whatever, whatever we're calling it. You should name it, I guess. More than your phone now, right? You're getting, what you're doing is you're making room. Yeah, yeah. Maybe, why did you call it like uh, record renos? No, no, it's like the the B section, like name the B section, like better get out my fucking pen or something like that. (laughs) (laughs) How about this? I be listening. Oh, sure, man. Sure. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Remember a few years ago, uh, we went, to a certain zone, Ryan, for a, a, a comp called Another Shot for Bracken on Positive Force Records. Yeah, do you mean the comp zone? Yes, that's the zone. So that we, we talked about the band The Brigade and the Dividing Line record. Yes, yes, 19, yes. 1986 BYO. This is more or less the final incarnation of Youth Brigade prior to the 1991 reunion. Mark and Sean Stern went under The Brigade after Adam's, Adam Stern left the band. It's kind of a weird record. It's it's new windy, um, but it has some kind of goofy interludes. Mm-hmm. There's a song with violin on it. Jane uh, Wieldlin from the Go-Go's is on it. It's about half good, I would say. Uh, I've said this before, but for nostalgia reasons, my favorite seven second stuff is the Praise EP. Mm-hmm. Uh, the stuff most people probably say sucks and sounds like you too. Um, so that probably, me saying that probably drives actual seven seconds fans nuts, but whatever. It's the stuff that I got into. So, uh, and this kind of reminds me of that a little bit. Yeah. Similar era. Yeah. Adam would have went to join Royal Crown Review at that time, I believe, or started up Royal Crown Review, the, uh, the swing band. No, thanks. Uh, the next one, uh, I want to talk <laughs> about is Big Flame. Cubist Pop Manifesto. This is a comp of singles on UK indie label Ron Johnson Records, which uh, almost all of this band stuff was released on. Do you know the band Big Flame, Ryan? I do not. Okay, you're going to have to check this out. Make sure this is one of the ones you write down. They were a Manchester band circa 83 to 86. Never released a full length, only singles. They're on my radar from hearing uh, the Manic Street Preachers talk about them, actually. They do often. They cite them as an influence, but I wouldn't say musically. I don't hear the musical influence on the Manics, um, but if anybody out there listening, and it's probably everybody who's listening, that is a Minutemen Saccharine Trust fan should check out Big Flame like as soon as they're done listening to this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) That includes you, Ryan. Okay. Bad Beach. Seasick, Songs from the Deep, 2012, Boss Tunage, the great reissue label. Well, it's not only reissues, but they've they've done some good ones. 
or they did do some good ones, and this is one of the best. This collects the band's two LPs, 1987's Cornucopia and 88's Cut It Off, along with a bunch of demos. They were a UK hardcore band, kind of in the vein of Poison Idea. For def- for me, definitely like a cut above some of the other stuff coming out around this era. For sure worth tracking down. Surprised you don't hear their name more often, Bad Beach. Bad Beach, yeah. Funny, I was just uh, doing a bit of a deep dive on Boss Tunage yeah. be- because I was uh, getting way into this band called uh, the Porcelain Boys. And and I was uh, kind of following their thread. They're a, Porcelain Boys are a, a Minneapolis band, but they evolved into this band called Jettison that uh, I'm really digging. And uh, I was I was just ser- doing random searches, and uh, there was a Boss Tunage video about the Porcelain, very obscure, a couple of singles, this band, the Porcelain Boys. But how they evolved into Jettison, I found like a 15-minute video by the Boss Tunage guy describing this. Yeah, they did good work, Boss Tunage. Yeah. Uh, the next one is Big F, self-titled debut, 1989. I bought this on tape recently. They were an L.A. rock band in the vein of Electric Era Cult or The Almighty or Zodiac Mind Warp and The Love Reaction, Ryan. Kind of that late 80s sleazy biker rock vibe that I love. And this is killer. Well worth the $2 I paid for it. I'm on the lookout for their second album too. The Big F. The next one I want to talk about is Breaker Breaker Burn It Down. 2019 on the Cleveland label Deadbeat Records. This is a Portland band. Just good straight ahead rock and roll of the Dead Boys Cheap Trick Taters variety. But it's kind of a, a cut above a lot of the bands trying to do that style. Which is... Typical of Deadbeat Records, label boss Tim Spencer knows how to pick them. And this is another good one. Black Spot Flaps Down, 1989, on a Minneapolis label, Big Money Incorporated. They have a pedigree for sure. Lead vocalist Jay Christopher was previous to this vocalist in Rifle Sport. Mm -hmm. Uh, Guitarist Steve Bransig was in early twin tone bands The Phones and Figures and was also guitarist in Bash and Pop and plays on Friday Night is Killing Me. Bassist Scott Hall went on to play in the band Gnomes of Zurich, Ryan. Yeah, like it's a great band. Yeah. This is kind of metallic punk rock. Again, not on like Feel the Darkness era Poison Idea or maybe even Join the Army era Suicidal. It's crazy good. Kind of surprised it's not more well-known. Mm-hmm. I would agree. Okay, the next one is Broadcast and the Focus Group. Investigate Witch Cults of the Radio Age, 2009 Warp Records. Warp is primarily known as more of a dance music label, and the Focus focus Group is actually one dude, Julian House, and Broadcast are a duo, Trish Keenan and James Cargill. I, I really don't know much about either group, and like just reading up on them a bit and knowing like the label Warp, probably not my thing, but I kind of stumbled across this. It's super cool. Lots of chopped up samples and field recordings and found sounds, um, weird soundtrack music, science fiction samples. It's cool if you're looking for something chill but weird. The Black Voices on the Streets in Watts is the name of the album. This is spoken word, some set to jazz, very similar to much of the stuff that uh, Greg Ginn and with assistance Robert Vodica were releasing on New Alliance Records when, when Ginn bought it out from Watt. It's the Watts Prophets, who were a 
a political poetry group from Watts in the 60s and 70s. This came out in 1969. My favorite is Near My God to Thee, which is a super cool piece about John Coltrane with some some sax playing on it. it sounds kind of Last Poets, Gil Scott, Heron type it, of stuff. It is, yeah. Yeah, is. yeah. Okay, that sounds cool. It is cool. Uh, the next one is The Brandos, The Light of Day. Oh, yeah. 1994, their third album. This is a band you introduced me to many years ago, and I thank you for that, Ryan, because I love them. Uh, you can find their first two records used fairly easily. I, I see them around a lot. Honor Among Thieves and Gunfire at Midnight. They're, they're both excellent, and you should oh. pick them up if you ever see them. Yeah, I would agree, man. So good. Yeah, they were a New York band led by vocalist guitarist Dave Kincaid, kind of folk rock sometimes with a Celtic bent. Uh, just great songwriting, and Dave is a hell of a singer, too. Yeah, and he definitely has some offshoots. that He's got, like, Irish Civil War music. He's got Spanish music. Uh, the Brandos is my favorite, though. Just killer. Yeah, and then just lastly here, Ryan, I'll mention, and this is continuing on with bands I got into through Jeff Wagner's Mean Deviation book on progressive metal. Just been on a tear after reading his awesome book on Fate's Warning and, and just rocking to them for a month nonstop. I've been listening to a lot of this this kind of stuff again. Uh, anyways, this band is called Believer, and the album is Dimensions. Roadrunner, 1993, and it is total insanity. I guess I'd say they were a thrash band. Vocalist, guitarist Kurt Bachman kind of reminds me of Kurt Breck from DRI sometimes vocally. Hmm. This is one of those albums you can listen to like 20 times and still not get a handle on, on what's going on. It's just super dense, but I love it. Um, apparently they were a Christian band, Christian rock band, hence the name Believer, but it, you would never know. Um, the last 20 minutes is a 20 minute song in five movements. If that gives you any indication of, you know, what you're dealing with here. Oh yeah. It sounds like they probably have a graphic novel to go with it or something. <laughs> so let me, let me understand again, the purpose of these spiels. The last time you did this, it was to make room on your phone. This time, are, is this just alphabetical top 10 recommends of what you listened to recently? I just have so much music not just on my phone but just sitting in piles here in my office like it just forces me to, to you're get telling us it. what you yeah you're telling us what you most recently digested yes. is that is yeah. that it okay okay i'm in i'm in i love it uh last week there were some great recommends um so i'm in let's do it i'm interested to see if you make it to the end you didn't you did not last time i didn't no you didn't make it to the end <laughs> And, and well, you at least didn't do 10 of each letter to the end. You did not do that because hmm. I'm really interested to see what happens when you hit Q or Queens U. It'll just, yeah, I'll but... just do 10 Queensryche albums if I have to. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay. Well, seems like, uh, as with our show, you, you just are free to change the rules anytime, uh, for yourself. So That's why right. not? Yeah. All right. That all you got? That's all I got. Okay. So I still have wheel of spiels, but I'm just going to pick because I've got so many that are just sitting here gathering dust. I've got like eight books. I've got six on the SS tree. I've got five watts on base that are just sitting here gathering dust. I'm going to go to books this week that I got to get uh, I got to get out there so I can move on to move on to some other stuff, okay? Okay. Okay, books. Here we go. Um 
eight new ones to me. Not all of them are like new releases, but they're they're new to me. Most of them are new releases or upcoming. Is this uh, your next eight? It's not my next eight because I've 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 got some of these already. Hmm. Um, the first two, in fact, I've got already. So number one is a book put out by Numero, Unwound, nineteen ninety one to twenty ninety one. 252-page cloth-bound tome covering the first 11 years of the band Unwound, hundreds of photographs, and ephemeral miscellany, as they say, limited to 2,000 copies to mark the end of their 20-year hiatus. Um, love Unwound, love reading a book on Unwound while I'm listening to Unwound. Glad that they're playing again. All right, number two, the latest book that I've got by Sam Nee. Sam Nee, of course, put out that amazing photo book, A Scene in Between, covering uh, mid-80s UK, and all photos kind of covering obscure or very early days of UK um, post-punk, jangle, college rock bands, and their fashion and everything. Amazing, amazing photo book. Sam has got like the US edition out now called A Scene in Between USA. It's the second installment. The first one focused on the UK. This one on the US. It's a pictorial history of 1980s alternative Americana featuring hundreds of unseen images of bands like Faith, Rites of Spring, Dinosaur Jr., Embrace, Opal, Galaxy 500, Sonic Youth, Melvins, Scratch Acid, Pussy Galore with interviews from band members out on Cicada Books. It's just awesome. It's a great accompaniment to Sam's first book. Yeah, and I was looking those up actually recently, and for a you know a coffee table style photo book, they're, the prices are pretty reasonable. Yeah, they're tiny. Er, oh, ti- okay. Yeah, yeah, they're a little tiny. They're not like uh, they're not going to be as big as some of the other ones I'm going to mention in a moment here. But they don't need to be big. They're actually a nice handy size, and uh, they're just really high quality. And and say like, I'll never get tired of looking at like melvin's jam session photos before they even played a gig at how how young dale and buzz look in the shirts they're wearing i'm always i'm always going to want to buy a book of that type of photography yep speaking of photography the third book i want to mention it's been out for a while and i can't remember if we mentioned it but ed culver has uh released a book on christian death it's called only theater of pain it's out on cult epic books 220 pages. I'm not sure it's accurate to say that Ed Culver released it, but he's the a main contributor. It has photos and the early story of Christian Death, the band, as told by Ed Culver and surviving band members and others. It looks really cool. I haven't picked it up. That's on the to-get to list. Uh, any, any photo books from Ed Culver and on Christian Death, that'll be cool. Um, also recently, I caught that Greg Prado put out a book on Mark Lanigan. Um, you probably saw that uh, hit the wire. It's probably pretty Greg Prado-esque in that it's, you know, also a bit of a collection of prior articles and stuff like that put together. But nice to have a book on Lanigan and in, in all kind of like one location. So yeah. I'll appreciate getting that one. Yeah. I've mentioned this series before, Music in a Word, Volumes 1 and 2 by Ira Robbins. Ira put out a third one last September that I I missed, but it's out now. That's called Music in a Word, Volume 3, Whippings and Apologies. It has articles on Yola Tango, Television, Matador Records, The Dictators. 
it also has a bunch of like mainstream bull crap. But, uh, you know, I always love reading uh, stuff that Ira Robbins puts out. And there's definitely some articles in it, too, where he's like writing in submissions to other magazines and saying like, you know, your music writers are basically like plagiarizing other music writers and mm-hmm. stuff, which is always interesting because, uh, you know, Ira was a force to be re- reckoned with. Um, and, uh, you know, I think it's fair to say a lot of people plagiarized Ira. Well, a lot of people just reprint shit that's in the press release, too. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, yeah, and one of the things I read was Ira, you know, basically uh, criticizing some writers of a magazine for that for that very reason. Yeah. Uh, okay, number six. I have eight to mention. Number six by Chris Schlarb from Big Ego Records. Uh, he is uh, the force behind Psychic Temple, that band that uh, Watt plays in from time to time, also releasing the MSSV records and other great records on Big Ego Records. You can also go and subscribe to his new annual uh, record club. Go check out Big Ego. I always like supporting them. He has released a book, a pocketbook called On Recording, A Manifesto. And here's how this book is described. A compact and direct guide to mobilizing creative energy, no matter the size of your studio, budget, or project. Through his friendly but candid prose, Chris Schlarb outlines concrete steps for determining the focus, approaches, and strategies to bring to a recording environment. In a book that's small enough to slip into your back pocket, On Recording distills decades worth of on-the-job learning, part how-to and part creative manifesto. It's an essential volume to have in hand in a recording space. That sounds cool. I mean, I'm not really recording music these days, but sounds like a good read. Yeah. You and I know that finally, finally, that Estrus book is going to come out this year, Shoveling the Shit Since 87, out on Carrero Press. That I'm dying to get. Uh, I think we mentioned that maybe two years ago, but there's a release date later this year, thankfully. Pre-ordered. Yeah, exactly. Speaking of finally and pre-ordered, here's number eight for you, Brent. I know you wanted to mention this one a few weeks back. A new book on No Means No. Finally. It's called From Obscurity to Oblivion, written by Jason Lamb, out on PM Press, almost 400 pages there is another No Means No book out there called Going Nowhere by Mark Black, but I think this is going to be the definitive oral and visual history of No Means No, long overdue, um, hopefully coinciding with re-releases or, or reissues of their back catalog on Alternative Tentacles. I cannot wait to get this book. Yeah. Well, the go- no offense to the dude who wrote it because he's written one more book than I have, but that Going Nowhere book is not even really worth mentioning but um are you in this book ryan this new one (laughs) uh there's a chance i'm in it i i don't i don't know what what actually uh hit the cutting room floor or not i did definitely make some submissions and meet with uh jason who's a heck of a guy i mean he uh he's he's doing god's work if he's putting out a book on no means no i and i guess he eventually found me as one of the uh, the old tape traders from the 90s. Big time and, tape trader. And uh, got in touch with me because um, every now and then on some of those No Means No feeds, you'll see a bunch of handwritten or, or whatever, like bootleg 
no means no tapes or videos even i used to do vhs tapes back then i can't believe it um and and it'll be like yeah that's my handwriting all over them and and they're showing up all over the world and uh, this is before all that stuff was just all on youtube of course and so jason tracked me down uh, but it remains to be seen if I'm in there. Uh, there's lots There's lots more important stuff to make its way into the book than me. Yeah. Well, uh, including, I think, all four band members, pretty sure. Participating? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I, I think he's got full band member participation and support. And not just from all four band members, but all of the, all of the circle, the wrong records circle, you know, like... I think I think this is just going to be an amazing um, amazing snapshot of an underappreciated band that was uh, so meaningful to me and still is. Yeah, big time, man! I can't wait to read it. Yeah, that's it, man. Books. Next week, I got to hit you with some uh, new releases in Watts on Bass, maybe. Maybe, hey. All right, let's get into this Poison Summer record. History lesson, part one. Okay, so it's our second Trotsky episode, although Trotsky has come up a ton throughout our episodes over the years for a number of reasons, and I'll, I'll cover some of those in a bit here. Our first Trotsky Ice Pick episode was the Baby LP, SST-197, where we had Kel Johansson on as a guest, and we did a deep dive on the history of Trotsky Ice Pick. I'll, I'll cover a bit of it pretty high level here now, but if you want to do the ultra deep dive on Trotsky Ice Pick, go back to episode 197, then also listen to that amazing interview with Cal Johansson. Baby was basically their third album, and this album, Poison Summer, is their second album they released in 86 because their first album, also called Poison Summer, also released in 86, was by uh, the band under their prior moniker, Danny and the Doorknobs. So they had two albums released in 86 called Poison Summer, both on their label, Old Scratch Records. And again, when you think about Trotsky Ice Pick, you are intrinsically tied to the history of the urinals who Vetus also produced, among many, many others on SST. I was thinking, you know, how many releases we have had on the show that are related to our guest. Definitely a very influential uh, musician, but also a recording engineer and producer with his studio, Lyceum Sounds, where bands like The Last, which Vetus was in, Leaving Trains, Savage Republic, um, but also like the Angst record, Mystery Spot, or Slovenly, We Shoot for the Moon. We've had a lot of Vetus on the show and so great to have him on for this amazing record. I love this record. Yeah. Um, also intrinsically tied to the Trotsky ice pick story. In addition to the urinals are things, you know, I mentioned the band, the last happy squid records. You could even go out further into, you know, like independent projects and Bruce Liker or whatever. There is just an incredibly rich history of the American underground music scene that is tied to this band. Now, as a reminder, with respect to Danny and the Doorknobs, Vita started that band after leaving The Last. He started it with John Frank. They were eventually joined by Kel Johansson of The Urinals and 100 Flowers for the first record by Danny and the Doorknobs, Poison Summer, on Old Scratch in 86. That record was actually repurposed for SST 254, so we'll actually cover that in a few months. 
On the baby LP, SST-197, the lineup had John Rosewall on bass and Jason Kahn on drums. But on this record, Poison Summer, again, their second lineup, and first one is Trotsky Icepick. Vetus, Kel, and John Frank were joined by Jamie Lennon on keys. And and there that's where they changed their name, essentially, from Danny and the Doorknobs to Trotsky Icepick. Now, and recall, of course, like, why were they changing their name and putting out two records, both called Poison Summer? Well, the idea was that they would have the same album title for each release, but just change their band name every time. Um, and as you'll hear from Vetus, Ginn kind of put the kibosh on that and said, you know, why don't you just stick with Trotsky Icepick? Um, many, many releases followed this one by Trotsky Icepick. Trotsky also reformed around 2018. And I can't wait to cover more and more of those uh, releases on the show here. But just to, you know, not to go over all of the same material from episode 197, they they re- did reform, thankfully, in 2018 and released the I Haunted Myself LP on Poison Summer. Um, and what you'll also notice is the Poison Summer Records symbol is the same cactus that's on the cover of this Poison Summer Trotsky Icepick LP. Um, most recently, actually, Trotsky released a five-song digital EP, Rules for Future Living, just uh, last month, I think. That lineup has Vetus, Kel, John Telly Jones, Tom Hofer, John Frank, and John Rosewall. Yeah, I'm not sure Vetus is like in the band. I think he's just on like one song, I think he says on that EP. Right, and I think to your point, Brant, uh, Vetus, his real proj these days is Petrified Max which has released three albums on Poison Summer since 2020 with John Rosewall and Danny Frankel. Most recently released the Cool Sliver Moon EP last year with Rachel Hayden. And since we did the Baby LP, SST-197, we actually have a couple more resources as well relative to this group of musicians. We have um, the Ryan Leach book out on Space Case Records on the Urinals and 100 Flowers. Vetus uh, contributed to that, as did Kel. Um, they were both interviewed for that book. Doesn't really get into Trotsky Ice Picks so much, but again, like it's very hard to talk, uh, at least for me, about Trotsky Ice Pick or Danny and the Doorknobs and not talk about the urinals and 100 flowers. And then uh, there's Jim Rulin's book, Corporate Rock Sucks. Doesn't really go into Trotsky Ice Pick very deeply in that book, though, I would say. Jim calls Trotsky Ice Pick experimental pop, which I, I would agree with. Um, I think Jim probably could have spent a bit more time on Trotsky Ice Pick, but frankly, you can't do a deep dive on every single band um, in the catalog. And hopefully Abe Gibson's book on SST will do a, a bit more of a deep dive on Trotsky Ice Pick. Yeah. And we're going to be here in Trotsky again in seven episodes. So like for the follow-up um, to Baby, actually, which was yes. El Cabong. So if you're counting in true SST fashion, that'll make it three Trotsky releases in 1989 alone. Exactly, exactly. And El Cabong, again, how you you can't really talk about Trotsky without talking about the urinals and the hundred flowers. That's the record where John Talley Jones joins the band as a vocalist. Um, I think Vetus doesn't give his himself enough credit though as a vocalist on this record i think it's awesome oh big time man i i have some thoughts on that once we get to the to the tracks for sure but yeah yeah well let's throw to vetus all right we're joined on the podcast today by vetus matare vetus thanks for being on the show (laughs) this is gonna be fun i'm so thrilled to be part (laughs) 
and I, I dig the whole exhuming the SST catalog approach. I just think that this uh, this program is awesome. Oh, thanks a lot. I'm a fan. It, it's really really cool. <laughs> well, thank you. Uh, well, if you it sounds like you've listened, so you probably know what the first question I usually ask is. You know, where were you born? Oh God, um, yeah, my parents just happened to be on the East Coast. They were constantly moving. So I was born in Long Branch, New Jersey. Hmm. And uh, my father was working there. My mother had some gig with in, in New York. Where did you go to high school? Um, in uh, Germany and then also here in L.A. Hmm. Yeah, I got shipped off as a kid. My parents were separated and no one wanted to deal with me. So they had a custody battle, which sounded like he's better off with you. And so I ended up being shipped off to a boarding school. Okay, you went to high school with Joe Nolte? Yeah, but um, at the very end, I got expelled from Pali when I came back in my junior year. They decided I should go to a rather strict school, which was Loyola. And the guy that was in the most trouble at Loyola was Joe Nolte. And we immediately started bragging about the songs we write and the record collections we had and what we could do musically. And um, yeah, I mean, literally day one at Loyola, I meet Joe Nolte and we, we really did hit it off. It was always very competitive between the two of us. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, well, what was in your record collection at that point? Well, I mean, we had different aspects of the Zappa catalog. Yeah. had a lot of prog stuff. Joe had more of the folk kind of stuff. And I introduced him to some of the bands that weren't a big deal here. One of my favorite bands at the time were the Pink Fairies. Oh, yeah. Which I absolutely adored. And uh, I he hadn't heard the MC5. Um, and he hadn't heard early Golden Earring, like uh, Chunk of Steel, that first single. So those were things that I really, really liked. And uh, we started working together on a band. We did covers of Kinks songs. He knew the Kinks catalog much better than I did and knew the coolest of the Kinks albums. I remember the first record that he, I think, bought a new copy and I got his kind of beat up copy of Arthur by the Kinks. Mm. And it really started. I mean, it was like every other day. It was, uh, we'd go to the graveyard across the street from Loyola High School with his guitar and my flute. And we'd be, you know, playing our song ideas to each other. I don't think the Pink Fairies get their due as like when people talk about proto punk. Oh yeah, uh, Deviants and Pink Fairies, or all the people that came and went in that outfit. Because it's not really a band, right? Mm -hmm. It's sort of like a collective. Yeah. Or you can call yourself the Pink Fairies, no problem. You don't even have to have an original member. You don't have to know the songs in the catalog. Yeah, you're the Pink Fairies today. But <laughs> the people that came and went were just fantastic. There's a, there's a Canadian in there, uh, Paul. What's his name? Paul Rudolph. Yeah. Uh, he's one of my favorites. That voice. I mean, how can you have a voice that's that thrashed and you're in your early 20s? <laughs> <laughs> okay, why was why did you play the flute? How did that happen? Well, my mother was a pianist, um, played continuo, harpsichord, and chamber ensembles. And um, she had been like raised by her father, who was a flautist, to be there to accompany, you know, for her to accompany him. Right. And so... It was reversed when my generation came along. It's like, you're going to play the flute whether you like it or not. Um, piano lessons, so you learn a little bit of music theory. And um, it, it, it stuck. I enjoyed that. It was really great. But um, that really wasn't what I wanted to do musically. And classical music, well, I listen to it now. And jazz, which was one of my mom's passions. Um, those things didn't matter to me much back in the early 70s. I wanted to play loud, noisy rock and roll. Right. When did you fall in with the urinals, guys? Oh, that was uh, quite a bit later, um, sort of like late 77, I guess, early 78. And I just ran into him at a party at UCLA. 
and their attitude was just the best and they were so clever and funny and you know surfing with the shell was an absolute you know disaster but a masterpiece that first time that i saw them mm -hmm. and there's a five-piece band and i later saw kel johansson on campus and said dude i want to record your band he thought i was kidding but i i started recording bands real early on uh, my mom had really nice tape recorders and two large neumann mics or the big tube mics with the external power supply and i recorded bands in the palisades when i was like 10 years old mm. um and it was always something i wanted to do not to make records to, to compete with majors but to do my own clandestine subversive sort of stuff so it was uh it wasn't really the the diy concept more so than just trying to create something that would be orally really really exciting and i just like you know loud noisy natural recordings yeah um and were just the perfect vehicle for me to try to record stuff like that and just keep it really raw. Had you done a lot previous to recording them? Yeah, one of the original last members and I, we recorded songs uh, when we were in middle school because mm -hmm. we had these two really nice tape recorders and we'd ping pong stuff back and forth. This guy named David Harvison and I, we would write songs together and record them when we were like 12, 13 years old. It sounds like it took some convincing on Joe's part to get you to to join the last is that fair no that's definitely fair yeah no I didn't want to be in a band I kept expressing that but I wanted to record the stuff and maybe help arrange the material I would play a little bit of flute I didn't want to be on stage um I didn't want people looking at me uh, it just wasn't my thing I wanted to be magic Alex in the background doing electronic noises and crap but that's not what Joe needed and uh my function in the last was to enable Joe to get his songs heard it really was that song that Group of songs and the live performance, all that, it was about Joe Nolte. I was just there and I shouldn't have been on stage, you know, I was there to help make it happen like Gary Stewart and some of the other people that helped Joe along the way. Yeah, just in general, you mean? Like you were more interested in maybe being uh, like on the engineering side as, as opposed to being a performer? Yeah, very much so. Yeah. 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 I like manipulating tape. I love recording stuff and figuring out how to blend the sounds and also interested in arranging the material well that's where the producer aspect comes in right yeah yeah that's what i wanted to do right from the get-go yeah you did you know like what a producer did did you understand like what producers were uh kind of i knew they weren't the uh recording engineer you know producers that would work on stuff that my mother was a part of right um yeah but i you know mott the hoople was the first band that i saw live and i came to recognize based on articles that Guy Stevens had so much to do with shaping that band and shaping what I loved about the band. The live shows were kind of sucky, sorry, but the albums, you know, especially uh, that, that Red Record, whatever it's called, um, those things are so fantastic. And you have to credit Guy Stevens because the same sort of um, atmosphere would pop up on London Calling, you know, years later. Right. Yeah. Do you remember your first gig with The Last? Yeah, they were high school gigs. Yeah. like 70 joe's really good on the dates and all that stuff man but we played um at loyola and then our little band went over and played at an all-girls catholic school i think it was immaculate heart <laughs> and one of the bogos was actually a senior there when we were juniors and um you know we talked to her at that time our band absolutely sucked and we always had technical problems and you know, things that always uh kind of go awry during our set for some reason we had the worst kind of we we overextended ourselves because we bring all this stuff because we we're going to switch to marimba and we're going to have two different kinds of organs going at these crappy amps but yeah 73 different talent shows 
with Joe. And then about a year later, we started playing um, a bar in Montebello called the Flame Pit. We were not well received, but uh, chairs and bottles did leave uh, the ground. <laughs> <laughs> and we played a block party in Downey that was particularly insane. Um, all the while, it was uh, David Harbison and uh, Joe Nolte in that band. Well, yeah, it really meant really fun. I mean, like, were people looking for original music back then? That the people who were no. booking these clubs? Um, no, you know, they wanted us to play a whole lot of love. Yeah. Um, they, yeah, and then we'd pull out a Bowie cover, and you know, the bikers would be all upset at the bar. You know, they're, oh my God, they're a bunch of faggots. Get them out of here. I'll fly. <laughs> How do you how do you look back on that first run of the last? I mean, we've you know up to eighty four or whenever it fell apart. We've talked to Joe on the show, and he, he seems like, I mean, this might just be a, a Joe Nolte thing, but he seems like the, you know a certain amount of regret for the the way the band ended on his part. There should be no regret. It just for me, it got to a point where I wasn't helping, and you know the the band went through different phases, and everyone thinks the important. Some people think the important phase was the three brothers with Jack Reynolds. And that was just a wonderful time. And Jack Reynolds became a close friend. He was a unique kind of guy. He didn't drive a car. He had all kinds of little, you know, uh, personal issues. He loved to beat people up. He was very violent and actually kind of dangerous. Um, for us, for Joe and I being little wimps, that meant we had protection in a bar. Um, but he blew up at a show at a place called the Hong Kong Cafe and he quit on stage. And I said, Joe, this was like the 10th time. Don't invite him back into the band this time. John Frank, who recorded one song with us, is back from his year abroad. Let's just have John Frank take over on drums because we can't be doing this. And Joe doesn't didn't click with John Frank so well, so well but John Frank was a consummate professional and just the, the best drummer on the scene, in my humble opinion. And the band went up like 10 notches when John Frank joined on drums. And the rhythm section of David Nolte, who at that point had become a really skilled bass player, and John Frank was powerful live. That was the great period. And then the constant bickering between John Frank and Joe Nolte. Um, it was really fun, but not for Joe. Was John from the area? Like, was he somebody you knew in high school? Uh, no, it's somebody that I met at a party uh, while I was at UCLA. I met him around the same time that I met the urinals. And what happened then was that I had a guy in the band that I could play my songs with because he'd immediately play drums and I would shape the music that I was writing. So we had this little Danny and the doorknobs thing that we'd, we'd play songs, record them, present them to Joe. Is this a song you might do? And I, I would have like a song. I was recording songs onto the answering machine at John Frank's little apartment. <laughs> I'd call in and play my song. He's like, you got to get an overdub capacity on that answering machine. But uh, and then we present that stuff to Joe. So Joe was bombarded with songs to kind of fill out voids in his material because he was writing in, at that time very much in the 60s style. And I wanted to, you know, mix things up. Right. Uh, okay. Uh, you recorded um, the last album, Painting Smiles on a Dead Man at Lyceum. Now, was this the, the location that we've talked about with some of these other albums that got recorded there, like at your house with the, with the pool house and everything? Actually, the studio that played the biggest role at that point was Radio Tokyo with mm -hmm. Ethan James. Yeah, I'd helped studio a guy named uh, Michael James worked on the equipment, setting that, recorded a bunch of stuff, and Bill Inglot really helped Ethan James too. And we had the good fortune of having Bill Inglot as our sound man, 
And then he was willing to take all the abuse of trying to record demos that Gary Stewart was funding. It was called Little Red Cassette. Nobody picked up the band. And we finished those demos with a bunch of other songs. That's produced by Bill Inglot. And it's recorded with Ethan James at Radio Tokyo, Painting Smiles on a Dead Man. That's not a Lyceum project. Mm. The only Lyceum song on there was recorded the live version that I tracked of uh, Louie Louie. Ah, okay. That's, <laughs> well, rest of the record is definitely not. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm assuming Ian uh, Ethan was a was a mentor to you as an engineer. Oh, he came from one of my favorite bands. Yeah, you know, I I loved um, Blue Cheer, all versions of Blue Cheer. Joe was not a fan so much early on when we met at Loyola. Um, I even loved the band Mint Tattoo. He's you know partially involved in that as well. So when this guy is setting up a studio and uh, you know needs some help with this or that, and it's like, yeah, you can borrow my little Revox B77 and use it for tape slap and I brought stuff in there and then I started recording there. What was going to happen immediately when the, we gave up on that little red cassette and we, the French record company put out that painting smiles on a dead man, which by the way, was an expression that Bill Inglot used whenever he was asked by Gary Stewart to remix one of those songs. He'd say, <laughs> oh man, it's painting smiles on a dead man. <laughs> so uh, I, we're going to go and record a record. We'd arranged all the songs uh, that was going to be called Some People Never Learn. We even about putting poor Gary Stewart's face on the cover instead of anything having to do with the band. But Joe chickened out the night before the session and I had lined everything up. I was going to produce it. So I invited Kel Johansson to fill in for Joe. We recorded the Danny the Doorknobs record in two days. Mm. Not the songs we were intending to do. There are a couple last songs in there, but yeah, that was just, that's how this, that was the end of it for me. I wasn't going to set up any more sessions. That was in 1983. Right. Okay, so the this Danny and the Doorknobs thing that I'm I'm gonna make sure I have this right. So the in eighty five, eighty six, Danny and the Doorknobs released this Poison Summer record. Right. On your own. Old scratches, I'm assuming yeah. your label. Wanted to put it out. He yeah. came to the shows that we were playing. He said, Let me put it out. I said, You know what? This is not that kind of thing. We're just gonna do, we did the single, that's what got his attention. Mm-hmm. We're just gonna put out the album, really limited, just a couple hundred copies. The new band will come see you. Yeah. Sorry, I missed who who wanted to put it out. Uh, Greg Ginn. Oh, he that early. I, I was tied in with Greg very early on because they needed to put out Nervous Breakdown. They needed to figure out some way to do that. Right. I helped him get it mastered, got him into the pressing plant in Alberta, and getting the stuff printed. Yeah. Okay. So, <laughs> uh, an old scratch is you. Yeah, you know the problem was we could never keep our record company names. There were always some problems with that. We started. Joe and I had backlash. It kind of got taken away from us by. The last manager he used that for much bigger and more important things we were told not to use that so we created warfrat which was you know the anti-grateful dead kind of label it right. didn't have the h we worked out of a garage that was full of empty warfarin boxes because the landlord used those to poison all the rats that were living in the house so you know war- there were these super rats that ate that stuff <laughs> that came and listened to our rehearsals so it was warfrat and then we put out a record and there were legal issues with that. It was Gary Stewart and I did Warfrat. Mm-hmm. So well, we're just going to put out Chatsky Ice Picked or Danny the Doorknobs. We just came up with a new label. Right. And I thought Scratch would be kind of funny, you know. Got new records. They're old and scratchy. <laughs> okay. So you change your name to Trotsky Ice Pick. Yeah. And then you reuse the name Poison Summer for the Trotsky debut. Well, here's the, the difference is that um, every time we played a show, we picked a different band name. Uh. We didn't hang in the doorknobs more than once. You know, we were whatever. 
Terry and the Tossers, whatever we were, it didn't matter. And uh, we decided that since we didn't have a fixed band name, that maybe all these different bands would all be putting out the same album over and over again. <laughs> okay. <laughs> At some point, yeah. you decide to settle on Trotsky Ice Pick, though. That's true. Greg Ginn said there was no way that he was going to go for the Daisy Chain. That was the latest argument where you see Danny the Doorknobs put out Poison Summer. Then a band named Poison Summer put out an album called Trotsky Ice Pick. Then Trotsky <laughs> Ice Pick put out an album called something else. And he said, just fuck it. Yeah. It's Trotsky Ice I'll put it out. And then they, what do we call this thing? And it was a, you know, a drunken evening. And uh, John Rosewell said, well, that picture of the baby on the wall. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> you heard the rest of it from Kel. So I just closed that loop. Right. Okay. So after Baby comes out, then uh, Greg wants to reissue both Poison Summer records in 89. That's right. Yeah. Okay, now, are, was anything done to those recordings before they got re-released on SST? Yeah, yeah, you know, SST gave us a small advance, which we never would have been able to recoup. We never repaid. So I always think, you know, thank you, Sonic Youth. You guys didn't get paid, but because of your record selling, we got to do these remastered versions of our little masterpieces. Right. So, yeah, remix Danny and the Doorknobs, because a lot of that stuff, there were just hours and hours it takes on that stuff. And we just uh, put it together in what we thought was a better sequence. And then all we did on the second Poison Summer, the Trotsky Ice one, was we we had used used tape when we recorded that at Mad Dog with Eric Westfall. Mm-hmm. And there there were jingles on there, those reels. All four of the reels had the same freaking jingle. And we spliced it all together. It was called Temporary Faith Rangers because these guys were not just session players, but you could just tell they were so loathsome and they did not care about what they were playing. And the banter between... <laughs> The tapes are in the middle of when everything would stop. It was just the best. We collected that all together, and I sang over the top of it and Cal played guitar to it. <laughs> <laughs> That's you talking about being a session guy or whatever. Of yeah. course, yeah. yeah. I did my sound like one of the a-holes that was on that recording. <laughs> <laughs> okay, who's Eric Westfall, and what, and what was Mad Dog? Mad Dog was a recording studio on Lincoln Boulevard, halfway between Santa Monica and Venice. Uh, it was actually a, a kind of a nice room. They had a decent board. I met Eric Westfall through... Um, Howie Geld, and we ended up recording the Leaving Trains album, yep. uh, which one? Uh, Kill Tunes. That was Eric Westfall and I that recorded that, and we just had the best time. And uh, at that, that point, I was um, working with Kel, and John Frank was willing to play drums, but John Frank's childhood friend, Jimmy Lennon Jr., was available, and I thought, oh my God, I'm going to be in a band with a real singer again. Oh, this will be great, because I don't want to sing. And Jimmy Lennon did everything except sing. And we didn't want to make a big deal out of, you know, the fact that he was a boxing announcer and all that stuff. So it was, we just call him, you know, Jamie. That's what John, John Frank calls him. So, yeah, Jamie Lennon was on there. And he did, you know, uh, left-handed bass. We didn't have a bass player. Sometimes Kel would play an eight-string bass. They'd trade off on the bass part. But he could do, you know, cool organ parts, piano parts, everything. He could sing backups and that barely would do that. But his bass playing on the keyboard was actually really great. And it was cool live. So live, he would play the bass notes on the keyboards like Paul Rossler did in DC3? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. that's cool. Okay, um, you wanted to switch to guitar, I assume? It just came naturally right at that point. I'd always written all my songs for the last on guitar. There were a few things I you know, wrote on the Farfisa, but I was playing guitar. I had to learn some guitar because... Um, playing live shows at that time, th- there were no real PAs, and I couldn't even hear what we were doing. And it wasn't um, 
a set, you know, a set, set. The songs would come out, people would request something, and Joe can play anything. And I don't, you know, I can't even hear what chord he's playing, and he'll turn towards me and show me where he is on the neck, turn it to a bar chord for a second, then go back to the regular stuff. I'm supposed to pick up on that, not being able to hear him. So I had to learn to play guitar just to be able to play along with Joe on the keyboard. Oh, uh, yeah. Oh, uh, uh, yeah, and figure out chords like Louie Louie. <laughs> what is the chord that Joe snuck in there? That was, you know, a challenge. I, I think that forced me to learn to play guitar, which I really enjoyed. Yeah. And it's a much better instrument to haul around. Use someone else's amp and just bring your guitar. Okay, so live, it was either Jamie playing bass on the keys or playing bass on a bass. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the bass on a bass, that's Kel Johansson. Okay. He would switch guitar and bass in the middle of the set. Maybe. Oh, I see. Kind okay, yep. Yeah, and bass that he brought along. But at some point, John joins the band between Poison Summer and, and Baby. Yeah. Remind me again who Jamie Jamie was is. Uh, after you just look up Jimmy Lennon Jr. Yeah. A boxing announcer, and he, yeah, he can definitely sing. And this uh, humor, he should have been a stand-up comedian. His sense of humor is just the best. <laughs> All right, let's talk a bit about this record. Uh, so, and I'm going off the CD version, by the way, too, because there's it's quite different, different um, sequencing as well. Gaslight then. Yeah, and a few extra tracks too. Uh, yeah, the gaslight. Uh, so this is credited to you and Kale. A, a lot of these songs are. How did your songwriting part- partnership generally work? Like, how did how did you write songs together? Kale would bring in chord progressions, and he liked really simple melodies, and I like kind of complicated melodies, and I would put my own melody to his chords. That's the majority of them. Mm-hmm. But songs on this um, disc, some of them were orphaned last songs, mm-hmm. and Kale chord progression. I'd say, okay, screw my chord progression. I'm going to move, not, you know, adjust my melody, change the key, and move it over here and pull a couple syllables out of every other line. And I've got a song that writes perfect on what you just played. Let's rearrange, you know, your sequence here. And, uh, and I've got my song all fixed up, thanks to Cal. Hmm. Working with Cal was extremely uh, easy and prolific. And uh, he's just very open minded and really fun. He'd come out of a band who's, you know, Great sensibilities came from the fact that there's incredible tension within the two main guys in the urinals and 100 flowers. Right. I mean, they it almost comes to blows. And that just, you know, it, it was really creative, especially on that 100 flowers LP. I mean, they were at, at a pinnacle, mm-hmm. but it was wrestled for the two of them and they parted ways for a while. And I was so glad when John Telly Jones was willing to come back and, and sing in a band with Cal. And they are best friends. These guys care so much about each other. But when it comes to artistic stuff, there's a lot of this just tension when kel and i worked together it was just the opposite you know it's just pure joy it was really fun and this record is that because it's recorded in one day right and we practiced the whole set we recorded it as a set but the sequence wasn't ideal and that's why every time i had a chance to rearrange the sequence of songs i did (laughs) um yeah and then at the very end of it the, the one thing that made it really cool was that watson was available and came in and kel and i were both playing gibson guitars I had a rather unique hollow body 330 with the you know single coils on it, and he had a really bitch in 1960s 335 that just had the best sustain and tone. I had the block body, but I discovered Stratocasters, <laughs> and uh, Joe Nolte always hated Fender guitars. He was just a Gibson guy, and I went that route too. And uh, I got a you know a pawn shop Strat, and I brought it to the session and had old strings on it. I plugged it in, and there was like this little song idea that I had. And Cal had these lyrics about 
his girlfriend you know, being dressed really wacky, and he, it was, uh, you looked like something Goya drew. Oh, yeah. And it would jam. <laughs> and then we only played the thing once, and that's what's on the record. And it was with Watson and I doing stuff, and Kel keeping that really chimey. He uses Rickenbacker, keeping that going. Um, and that's my favorite part of the whole record. That's mm -hmm. the only thing improvised. Everything else on that record was just set. Here we go. We're going to do our live set, oh, and we're okay. going to nail it. Yeah, we played the whole record straight through, and there were very few overdubs. There were more corrections than overdubs, or a few things we doubled. And then the very next day, we went in and we mixed the whole record in one mammoth session. And it was too much for Eric Westfall. He fell asleep on the console. And um, we patched around those faders that he was resting on. And we finished the mixes around him. <laughs> uh, Tom Watson was in the studio with you when you recorded that live, or he overdubbed that? Dropped in, you know, because I... I've known Tom for quite a while and he's helped me out so many times, but I, I recorded Toxic Shock early on. Yep. And Tom came and tried out for the last. We wanted him to come in and play bass with the last way back when. And he decided it was not a good use of his time. He wanted to do original stuff and not be under the, you know, the reign of Joe Nolte. Right. But yeah, he was I just said, We're recording. Are you around? And he came in and jammed with us. It's pretty wild that this was done in one day. It, yeah it doesn't sound like it was well rehearsed yeah <laughs> you know there's a couple of videos of us playing these songs live and it's it's exactly what we did here it's kind of embarrassing because it's not really that fresh but the record it kind of works yeah but you no know, at the time i thought if we put this out on sst all those skate kids are going to listen to trotsky ice and think oh my god they're like an abysmal you know big hair band or something or <laughs> you know whatever it, it wasn't that kind of punk rock stuff anymore. It's keyboard based in great part. Yeah. Uh, the song, The Commissioner, I get the sense that, that that's about a real person. Ah, uh, yes. Well, um, it is. It's a bunch of things thrown together. I stole that line from, uh, is it The Loved One? Yeah. And, um, you know, at the very beginning, and Kel was talking about people that he was working with as he started his career as a lawyer, and there was some commissioner, and we made fun of that guy. But I'd also been reading about Leon Trotsky. We're going to abuse this guy's name. He was sort of a pop star. If you think of you know, the Russian Revolution and everything that happened with him, he's, he's, a, he's a public figure. And then you start reading about all the lesser people you never heard about. All these poor Russians are all murdered by the people that they worked with, right? right. <laughs> it was just brutal and gruesome. <laughs> so those things all just kind of came together. This is a Kel song, and I just started singing nonsense related to those unrelated topics. <laughs> <laughs> uh, would you, some of the stuff like Nightingale Drive is one of your songs, would you demo that at your at your home and then show the band, or, or would you just show them yeah. in practice? I demoed that very early on with John Frank, right when he joined the band. That was the last song. And that's, there's a, there's Blue Jay Way where the Beatles lived and people would go up there, but the real street to go make out with a girl was to go up Nightingale Drive up behind the whiskey. And so this song uh, was going to be a last song. You know, I wanted the last play a song called Nightingale Drive when we had a show at the Whiskey, but it just never worked out that way. We pulled this out of our pocket. I think we didn't actually put it on the record because it's kind of a, you know, it was a good song live. I didn't think it was strong enough to be on the record, but when SST reissued it and we had room on a CD, I slipped it in there. Big Dreams. Who's that going, you know, it looks enormous and all that. <laughs> <laughs> Those are... Um, Things that Kel said that uh, Jimmy Lennon sampled on one of those crappy Ensonique digital oh. sampling keyboards. Yep. You know, at the time, it was kind of high tech. Yep. Today, a Casio for $39 is a better machine. <laughs> but he would sample things that Kel was saying. We're just joking around. And it, whatever, it just happened to be, it sounded like a photo session. So we uh, put together a song about 
you know, really obnoxious people at a photo session. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a, something Zoog's Rift would have come up with or something. Con conceptually, anyways, right. not musically. Yep. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Might have done it better than us. <laughs> okay. Uh, just the end of the world. This one's like almost like a psychedelic thing. And it got me thinking about, you know, some of those Paisley bands, which you kind of get lumped in with maybe now, but was that a, th did you at the time, did you play with those bands? We certainly played with those bands and we really loved some of those people in those bands. I'm still friends with these people mm -hmm. and they're, the Paisley underground was a great thing. I thought the moniker was just dreadful. Yep. And when they started, you know, <laughs> brandishing that moniker around i just you know no no you know love 60s music love psychedelia um then love your band but i don't want to be part of a scene that's based on that because the last was always about reaching way beyond that and originally it was going for the original punk rock 60s style mixed with prog you know right. and um theirs was just really pure and really really enjoyable and very original it wasn't what we were part of so when Joe gets bent out of shape about not being thought of as the godfather of the Paisley Underground movement, I have to say, Joe, you weren't. You inspired people to start bands, and they went off on this own thread, and it's got nothing to do with us. But yeah, uh, vaguely related, because we were there at the same time, and we always tried to get bands that we liked opening spots at the bigger clubs in town. So in that sense, we were related to all of that. Plus, we always needed new members because the Nolte family would have a big blowout, and it'd be like, who can play guitar and sing? Um, Steve Wynn, you know, right. <laughs> would come and try out. It's like, Steve, you know, you should just start your own band because you don't want to the circus here. Right. Was Trotsky yeah. playing a lot of your own headlining shows or like what kind of shows did you generally uh, play? You know, when um, Baby came out, it was Steve Wynn that got us a whole string of gigs, obviously the Meat Puppets. And uh, we played with Angst, Soundgarden. But the band that really took us under their wing right as um, Poison Summer came out, we play with Camper, uh, Van yeah. Beethoven. That makes sense, yeah. actually. Yeah. With Cracker. Um, there, were, there was a bunch of SST bands that we played with. There was one show, you know, and Joe and I, we just stopped talking to each other. We couldn't agree on anything. And it was the Baby album. And we were opening for The Last and Soundgarden. And, um, uh, and it was Jane's Addiction. It was The Last and Jane's Addiction. And so we were at the bottom of the little thing. And I brought out my old Fender amp that had the last uh, stencil on the case. Yeah. <laughs> but right before the show, uh, a nail gun exploded in my right hand. And the back of the body nail gun hit me in the eye. Did not break my nose, but I had a black eye and my nose would not stop bleeding. And the cord, the, the pneumatic cable, went into my armpit. The oh. punctured me there. And I had a big cut up my wrist. So... I came, the no sound check, I came on and we started playing. I immediately started bleeding and looked like something really bad happened. So it's like, yeah, there was an altercation backstage. <laughs> <laughs> Don't let the truth get in the way of a good story, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you know, getting hurt with a nail gun's a pretty good story too, actually. <laughs> yeah, <it is. laughs> okay, um, Drawing Fire. Now this is a Hundred Flower song. Why? Why this one? I, they hadn't recorded it, mm. had they? I don't know if on the on the EP or not. I don't it's remember. Not, the EP no. was on fire, but they hadn't actually recorded the song. And I thought it was one of the better ones. And we used it as a warm up. Yeah, I was going to say because it's an instro, right? Yeah. Yeah, it, it it really kicked ass, and it was sort of a showpiece for John Frank, mm. because 
I mean, he's got a single kick drum in that thing, but man, is that thing going fast. It's yeah. like, he, and we just keep playing the same stuff, but he keeps building up, building up the drum parts. I, there's a, that live link that I share with you. It's about John Frank, man. Yeah. His drumming is just. Okay. Speaking of John, uh, the next one is set still the time. And that's yeah. a co-write between you and John. How did that one come about? Yeah, John Frank lyrics for a song. And they were very meaningful to him. I never understood them, but I set them to music. And I don't know if initially this was on the record. We added it for just the SST record. I think that's what happened. I don't remember. But I liked the song, and we did it live a couple of times. And we had just put this all together and arranged it. We went into the studio to record this, the Yellow Poison summer record. And I'm glad we did. It's kind of cool. We John and never, never co-wrote anything else. Hmm. But uh, yeah, I, I think it's my singing on that. John doesn't sing. He does the yeah, yeahs somewhere on this record on Hit Parade. <laughs> That's his vocal <laughs> contribution. Okay, before we get to Hit Parade, we've got to talk about Clowns on Fire. Now, this is this little coda at the end of it or whatever you want to call it. This is you and Jamie. <laughs> he, Jamie's playing this carnival theme and you're screaming over top, I assume. That is correct. <laughs> we had not that, of course. Yeah. But Jamie would pull out crazy things because he would play the organ part at some ball game seriously and he started doing that crazy thing after we did this he was playing that and it's kind of like clown music and everybody was busting up and so uh yeah i was inspired to uh synthesize the sounds of a clown seriously self-immolating <laughs> <laughs> and the, the new release of this thing we just ran that into one track we actually left that on mm -hmm. yeah okay hit parade uh, that's you and you and Kale writing together. How seems like this is the 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 last album where the two of you really wrote together a lot. That's that's correct. Yeah, we wrote a bit together on Baby, but that was more my song, Kale's song. This thing, everything was sort of uh, merged. Mm -hmm. um, it was really copacetic that way we brought stuff in. Uh, you know, Hit Parade is very much about um, the drum part because it's kind of like hypnotized by Fleetwood Mac. I mean, I, I love early Fleetwood Mac. I, I despise Meatwood Flack, what happened in 1974 and everything going forward. But I love Danny Kerwin and, and Peter Green stuff. And they had nothing to do with Hypnotized, of course. Um, but the way the drums worked on it, it's kind of what we did here with Hit Parade. And Hit Parade is about, um, you know, some lonesome DJ that's going to off himself. He's taken over the <laughs> uh, Okay, Ivory Tour. Is that Was that train sampled by you guys? Or where did you get that from? That was a sample that Jamie Lennon had on his keyboard. Mm. I don't know how he got it, but it really helped. And this is about a person that used to come to the last gigs. It's, uh, gosh, I, she was Asian and she was rather striking to look at, but she had some serious emotional problems. She was at UCLA and then disappeared. And she would come to shows with a handler. Um, and the handler would also have uh, medications to treat her. Oh. But she became rather violent um, at, at the shows. And I talked to her. Um, but if anything bugged her, man, you had to get out of her way. And then she stopped coming to shows. And then the one more time I saw her, she seemed really sedated. So it was not a pretty story. But uh, she would travel with her assistant or her caretaker. And they went to Africa. And she told me all about that. But in telling me about that, the story, you realize, oh my God, everything inside this head is mixed up. So this was a song for her. Okay. And I was recording demos for the uh, Long Riders for their first record. Uh -huh. And they have a song called Ivory Tower. And 
I was getting pretty tired towards the end of the session. They record the rather really great song, Ivory Tower. And on the, you know, the track sheet, I wrote Ivory Tour. And Sid Grimm's like, dude, man, go back to college. (laughs) 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 The design of the record, that's your sister, Felice. Yes. Was she a painter? Yeah, she paints. Yep. Photography, but mostly graphic design. And she's done a lot of, a lot of cool stuff mm-hmm. and, and worked as firms. She and I do not get along. I'm really grateful to her for doing the, the covers there. Um, but this was a big painting, you know, just uh, whatever packing paper. And she did that real quick. You know, Trotsky Ice Pick, does it look like this? And well, it's the wrong kind of ice pick, but it'll do. <laughs> <laughs> and then she painted a drum head for John Frank's kit. And uh, she did the cool labels, heads and tails. Um, and she put together the other album covers for us. That Ultraviolet Catastrophe album, that's a really big painting. Oh, really? Yeah, it's like 10 feet wide, 5 feet tall. Hmm. And Do hangs you... in John Frank. Oh, I was going to ask if you if you had it, had any of them. Yeah, got that. And he's got the drum head. Wow. Uh, before long, we'll be getting into El Cabong. So you you briefly mentioned this, but tell me about the decision to bring John Tally Jones in on vocals. I'm assuming, like you've said, you you kind of wanted to get off singing yourself. Yeah, that really was the key. Yeah. And hearing Baby on playback, which was you know recorded at rehearsals not at the Lyceum Garage and not at a proper recording studio, the vocals weren't recorded all that well. I just could not stand the sound of my own voice anymore. And I told Kelly, you know, we're, we're writing these new songs. Let's ask John if he's willing to sing. Because there's a there's a gap here in the Radway stuff going on. Um, if he's willing to come in and sing and write some better lyrics than the stuff I've been writing, that would be great. And he did. He came in during El Kamong and he felt like he was a hired hand. And I felt just the opposite. I felt like, okay, there's this band now called Trotsky Ice Pick that I, I'm only marginally involved with producing it. And I play guitar in it. But there's this guy. we got to feed him the right material and let him write the words. Right. And the shows all of a sudden became really engaging. Baby shows were really fun, but the Elkabong shows with John Kelly Jones, that, yeah. Yeah. Sort of the band right there. This is kind of during the era, too, where you really got your studio rock. And you were, like, everybody talks about Spot being the, the SST house producer. Right. <laughs> and, I mean, I understand why people say that. He, he, you know, was involved in some pretty famous albums. But, I mean, like, I think you gave him a run for his money and, like, the number of albums that you you engineered and produced that came out on SST. Yeah, the SST run was was really really fun, and that's Greg Ginn was really supportive, really was. Mm-hmm. And he would come to the he came to a lot of the Trotsky Ice Pick shows. Yeah, it's like okay, we're gonna record that. When do I get this? Or he would say, <laughs> you know, Angst, uh, John Telly Jones, does he want to produce them? Whatever. I said, you know, whatever. I'm up for working with with Joe and John anytime. Um, and then they started feeding me projects and that also helped with the studio because all these bands got little advances and they would spend them so I could get a couple more better, you know, microphones, all that money went into the studio to help with their production and the next one. It was really great. Yeah. At a certain point, I'm assuming it was just financially not sustainable for you. It it seems like there was a drop off at some point where you just chose a different career path. (laughs) Yeah. yeah, The whole thing was going to run off of a cliff. Yeah, and we tried doing a you know Warfrat Tales Volume Two to try and raise some money. Everybody donate tracks to that, but just manufacturing the CD became impossible. Yeah, the freebie cassette, and I, I borrowed money to buy a lot of the equipment. And in fact, um, we were having such trouble with this Neotech console, and uh, I bought uh, 
the one the machine that the Eurythmics used, uh, a Mark III, I guess it was, Soundcraft machine, and that was just constantly breaking down. Just the tech costs on that were killing me. I was partners with a guy that was a recording equipment tech, and even he had a hard time dealing with that motor start cap in that Soundcraft, uh, whatever the number was, Mark III. Oh, my God. The equipment's expensive. It's hard to keep it running. Yeah. And I was working at job and I was already, you know, thinking more. I want to not just work in a recording studio. I want to design and set up the acoustics in these places. I was getting more into that, more into uh, high fidelity thought on that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. So it's, I don't like doing the same thing for all too long, but now I've been working as an architect for decades. I don't know. I think it's time to shift gears. <laughs> well, you kind of <laughs> have. I mean, you've been playing music again recently. Yes. That uh, came through the meat pub. You know, years ago, 2012. They said, uh, they called up Cal and said, well, Trotsky Icebick open for the West Coast stuff. And I hadn't played with Cal in, you know, forever. Yeah. And um, I said, no, I'm not available. And then he dared me. I did it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, and there's a brand new Trotsky EP, Rules for Living. Yeah, I'm not even involved in that. I came in and I, I sang along on one of the tracks. But that is Cal and John doing that stuff. Mm-hmm. And it's it's really great. I love hearing it. I'm so uh, really uh, thrilled by the stuff that they're doing. Love those guys. Love what they do. The last EP before this, I was somewhat involved, and I came in so late that one of my song ideas is just John Talley Jones and me, a thing, Rust Belt. Mm-hmm. But that was like the last thing I did with Trotsky because the pandemic was upon us, yeah. and all this, I had the opportunity to play with two of my favorite musicians and not be interrupted by gigs and other crap. Okay. So you know, the Petrified Max stuff, and that's just kind of taken over. I, I like doing that better. Yeah, what what's next for Petrified Max? Uh, we're trying to find a record company that's willing to put out uh, an LP, mm-hmm. just using the best tracks from those three little CDs we did, mm-hmm. and try to play live. Here, the issue again is lack of a proper singer. That I would be the one singing. John Roswell will not sing. I got him to sing four songs on that last record, or he, you know, volunteered to sing those. But he's made it clear he's not going to do that again. So it's hard to have a pop band with no singer. Yeah. Well, I mean, you're a good singer. <laughs> uh-huh. Thank you. I, I'm good singing backups behind John Telly Jones because I can I can imitate John pretty well. So when he's doubled something, I can do it behind him, and that's really really fun. Uh, any more talk of reworking any of the last stuff? Absolutely. Um, we have transferred all the stuff that we call uh, dissected cats. Uh, the last used to rehearse in a garage at Mrs. Nolte's house, mm-hmm. and she was uh, working on a program with a nursing school, so we would perform in front of these jars of cat guts uh, that were in formaldehyde along the wall. And a lot of those recordings are now at Johnny Bell's. We're putting them together, that, and, you know, the original recordings, she don't know why I'm here. There's seven songs from that session, and we want to put that album out, which is pre-LA Explosion. Mm-hmm. Um, the masters for LA Explosion, I believe, are under David Nolte's bed, <laughs> and we're going <laughs> to transfer all of those. We're going to remix that, and that's kind of a big step for us. Yeah. Because the producer, John Harrison, was trying to get us to be, not be so noisy and actually present Joe's songs for their you know, content rather than just for the experience of hearing a band destroy them. So um, we're going to remix that thing. And then we, there's a whole other group of songs at the end. So I would love to, all the stuff that I was involved with, I would like to remix it and somehow find a way to put it out there. So mm-hmm. we're working on it. Awesome. Where should people go to check out Petrified Max? I'd say... I don't know, the usual digital venues, Spotify or whatever, um, YouTube. Mm-hmm. But uh, John Kelly Jones has started 
a second record company and it's separate from happy squid because that would be tension between he and kel johansson so there's poison summer records for the trotsky stuff being reissued and that's where we've parked the petrified max stuff as well kel's got a new ep out um and his gig you know lacking a singer is that he invites different people to sing every song that he's mm -hmm. written sometimes he co-writes with the singers and he's got um oh god he's got all kinds of great people singing on this thing but then there's another album it's been in the can for a while and he's got to finally release it and um yeah that uh, I, I just i don't want to give away too much but okay. um, well we'll keep an eye on it <laughs> yeah mr morris sings the title track on that and it's fantastic oh, wow <laughs> and i get to harmonize okay i get to harmonize with them keith and i harmonize on this song and i play a farfisa so it's not your usual keith but it's a Kel Johansson song and production, and it really worked. Oh, wow. So I, can't, well, I don't know what he's been doing, but he's got 14 tunes and an album with that band, The Circlons. So hopefully we'll be hearing that soon. I like his EP a lot, but the album's got the best songs that he recorded at that time. Mm -hmm. Any more stuff in the Trotsky archives that might be getting reissued or released for the first time? Yeah, I do the whole catalog. Oh. So we're taking the sequence, but we hit a bump in the road. Uh, Baby gets released uh, next week. Oh, really? And uh, yeah, the two bonus tracks that were on there are from a movie called Hellbent. And they didn't, we threw, I despise the CD format being a vinyl dude yeah. when that came out, right? And so I put stuff on the CDs just to screw with it. So I put these two wretched bad mixes of outtakes from the Hellbent movie soundtrack on there as bonus one and bonus two. Right. <laughs> and El Cabong, we had 18 minutes left on this CD, so we have a stuck needle for 18 minutes that gets dragged across the record right at the end. So when we reissue El Cabong, it will not have that. <laughs> <laughs> but there were some bonus tracks in there that we would remix. We're basically either surely remastering, but some of the songs could be mixed a lot better. And the El Cabong record, there's a conflict there between John and Kel. So we're skipping it. Johnny is currently uh, remastering Ultraviolet Catastrophe. Hmm. And then run through the end of the catalog. My issues are with the last record that was recorded one day live, you know, the whole thing through at the music box. We never properly mixed it. We didn't even put the name of the band on the cover, right? Wow. It just has that weird photo where you can't recognize us. <laughs> um, carpet bomb the riff. Right. Uh, we're going to give that a proper mix at least. It has some of John Telly Jones's best material, but it's not necessarily our best performance. And it's a killer rhythm section. Mike Patton and the late Johnny Glogovac on that. They just kill on that record. But the guitar playing is not up to snuff, at least mine isn't. Um, I don't want to fix it. I just want to pull some of my crap out of the mix, <laughs> push Kel Johansson forward, and give it a... It, sonically, it was mixed really poorly because no one cared. Yeah, the producer in you gets to at least write some of the wrongs, the ones that are possible to, to fix anyways. Absolutely, and that's, <laughs> that's what I'm excited about. That's what draws me to reissuing this stuff. Right on. Vitas, this has been awesome. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me today. I really appreciate it. Enjoyed it so much, Brent. And I'll be listening to all the, the other episodes that come up because there's so much great stuff coming up in the catalog and so much weird stuff that I don't know why Greg put it out. But <laughs> I, I learned yeah. all about it. <laughs> yeah, it's so true. I can't wait to get to some of it too. So thanks a lot. Really appreciate it. Right. Take care. Awesome. Like I said, it's so great to finally have Vetus on the show. Uh, but, you know, Vetus has been with us almost from the start, yeah. helping us out. And again, a big thanks. Uh, I feel really grateful and honored that Vetus has been such a supporter, kind of like the patron saint oh. of, of the Mojack show, right? Man, like 
you kind of said it before the interview, but, um, you know, we have some very loyal listeners who really seem to dig our show. And I can't tell you how much that truly does mean to us. I, I mean, we do this purely for our own enjoyment, but obviously it wouldn't be fun if nobody listened or interacted with us. But what's extra special is when one of the actual artists that we, you know, hold in such high regard and have so much respect for likes our show. Like, I can't even describe it, but it's super humbling. And Vetus is one of those people. And it really does mean the world to us, you know? Yeah. And it also means, it, it almost means even more when every time you talk to someone about Vetus, everyone has nothing but good things to say about Vetus as a musician, as a person, as an engineer, a producer, everything, right? And so when you've got someone that is held in such high regard, who is also a fan of you. It's even more. Oh yeah. You know, to get that stamp of approval from, from someone like Vetus or Josh Hayden or Jennifer Schwartz or people even like Brant Bjork, who's, who's a regular listener um, to the show. It's just pretty unbelievable for me yeah. to think yeah, about for that. Sure. Uh, did you look up uh, Jimmy Lennon Jr., the keyboard no. player? Okay. No. So, so for those of you who missed it, that's the real name of Jamie Lennon, Jimmy Lennon Jr., uh, who plays keyboards on this album, and holy shit, he might be the most famous person to ever appear on an SST record. Musically, anyways, I, I would say maybe Matt Groening is like <laughs> up there for the most famous people involved in SST in yeah. some way, but to actually play on a record, he's been a boxing ring announcer for 25 plus years for Showtime, Fox, Sports, others. Uh, he's in the World Boxing Hall of Fame, and like he's announced some historic fights like Tyson Holyfield, Floyd Mayweather versus Manny Pacquiao. And many consider him to, to be the greatest ring announcer of all time. I ended up going down a total YouTube rabbit hole watching compilations of his greatest, you know, ring announcements. Yeah, well, there's there's like two ring announcers from back in the day, right? There's the let's get ready to rumble guy. Yep. And then and then there's Jimmy. And basically any pay-per-view that I would have got back then was one of those two guys. Yeah, well, uh, Jamie is the, it's showtime. That's his catchphrase. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, Vetus mentions uh, helping Greg f uh, figure out how to release Nervous Breakdown, which, you know, totally makes sense since the last had already self-released three singles on their Backlash label prior to SST. Uh, oh, yeah. Oh yeah, totally. That that was like one of the places that Greg had to go to learn how to do it, man. Yep. That and Greg Shaw, I think. Yep. Uh, he mentions about his apprehensions towards releasing this on SST when it first came out in '86, and feeling like it wouldn't maybe wouldn't have been accepted from fans of the label. Hmm. That's just my interpretation of what he was kind of saying, but it's crazy how much changed between those years when they, you know from when this first came out in 86 and, and when they ended up releasing baby in 1880 in 1988, especially in 87, when the kind of the floods get floodgates opened up creative and, you know, as far as creativity at SST. Yeah. Interesting that he goes back a few times in the interview to kind of expressing his desire to be a behind the scenes person and definitely a reluctant front man. He kind of refers to the follow-up to Baby, El Cabong, um, when John Telly Jones joined as vocalist as the real start of the band, I think is how yeah. he says it. I mean, I love his lyrics and his vocals. I, I think he's selling himself short, but uh, I get it that his heart was was in production. Yep. 
I do too. And I like, I think I refer to him as like the SST house producer or something in the interview. And it's totally true. You mentioned some of these, but, but like the leaving trains, kill tunes and fuck angst, mystery spot and cry for happy treacherous, mm -hmm. good medicine and La Ila Bonita. Cruel Frederick, The Birth of the Cruel, and We Are the Music We Play. Slovenly, We Shoot for the Moon. Yeah. There's probably more, uh, but and that's just the SST stuff. Uh, that doesn't even include all of the stuff he worked on outside of SST or uncredited stuff he did working with Ethan James. Yeah. That's pretty amazing. You mentioned this too, but uh, just to recap, lots of Trotsky-related biz on the SST tree coming up. Baby might even be available digitally um, by the time this episode posts. He said it's coming very soon. Uh, Kale's project, Circlons, the killer new Trotsky EP you mentioned. Patrified Max are super prolific, so I'm I'm sure we'll be hearing from them soon. And wow, hopefully the the pre LA explosion last stuff, uh, possibly a remixed LA explosion. Yeah. Uh, later post look again era stuff like painting smiles era sounds like that material is all on the table so that's amazing i know these dudes all have busy lives but we're talking about important historical documents uh, that just need to be properly preserved it's important to get this stuff off of tape and onto a more friendly format you know in terms of preservation yeah plus i want it obviously so let's get into some history lesson part two history lesson part two all right, so in the absence of a Spaceman spiel from the SST catalog, not there is not one for this. It is part of 1989's New Harvest, kind of the last, you know, page on the catalog where there's some some narrative there. Um, I've got a spiel out of the Trouser Press record guide, uh, Ira Robbins again. Listen to what he says about Poison Summer. And he's talking about uh, the first Poison Summer by... Danny and the Doorknobs, and then he goes into this. The second Poison Summer, an entirely different 1986 LP, credited from the get-go to Trotsky Icepick, was recorded as a quartet in which the arrival of a keyboardist allowed Matari to concentrate on guitar. Harmony vocals and improvements on every front. Studio sound, twin guitar arrangements, melodies, lyrics, make the LP a treat a crisply uncommercial demonstration of unstylized pop with intelligently offbeat lyrics. Very true. Yeah. It sounds amazing. This record. Oh yeah. And Big it doesn't, time, it doesn't fall into those 1980s production trappings. Like this is a amazing sounding record. It, it really is. And recorded in two days, May 24th and 25th, 1986 at Mad Dog in Venice, California. By Eric Westfall, like Vetus mentions, we saw Eric on uh, that Kill Tunes record by The Leaving Trains. Uh, recorded in the same year as uh, Kill Tunes, 1986. Seems like Eric was actually involved with Christian Death, speaking of, of Christian ah, Death. Possibly wonder, as a songwriter and producer. I wonder if he shows up in that new Ed Culver book. Yeah. Mad Dog is still open, although it moved from Venice to Burbank, California in 1996. An insane number of cool records were recorded there. Some amazing root stuff like Lucinda Williams' self-titled album and some early Dwight Yoakam stuff. Megadeth recorded there. Weird Al, John Frusciante, TSOL, uh, Flying the Flannel and some of Mr. Machinery Operator were recorded there. 
Wow. So much more. Firehose and Weird Al. Yeah. Amaz- amazing. Yeah. Uh, the original of this uh, on the band's label, Old Scratch, came out on gray marble vinyl in mm-hmm. 1986. And it looks like they possibly made some cassettes also. The SST reissue in 89 was on CD, LP, and cassette with a different sequencing than the Old Scratch. Um, I think Vita said possibly a different mix. I'm not sure about that, though. There's definitely differences between the versions other than the sequencing that we'll talk about as we go through the tracks. And also, thankfully, this has been remastered, remastered and released digitally, so you can you can hear it on the Poison Summer Bandcamp and uh, streaming services. And you can buy it on iTunes as well. Yeah. I listened off my CD. I think, I think when I was picking up these records way back when, I realized that uh, I had to get the CD to get all the tracks. Yep. You definitely do. Um, both the old scratch and the SST LPs are divided into heads and tails for side one and two. Uh, and like I said, completely different sequencing. Um, the SST CD is almost the same track order as the SST LP, but like you said, it has a few extra tracks. And uh, so I'm also going off the CD version. So track one, side one, The Gaslight, written by Kale and Vetus, as most of these songs were. My first thought that this is like you said, an amazing sounding record. The guitars sound just perfect. I can hear an acoustic in there. The vocals are super rich and huge sounding, yeah. especially on the chorus. Not not sure exactly what the lyrics are referencing, but some of the themes like misinformation you contemplate and there's a new order uh, make this kind of sound relevant lyrically, but I'm sure that's not the context. Yeah, it sounds like it sounds like 2016. Yeah, um, yeah. What an opener! The yeah. the chord changes, the melody, the harmony, vocals. Uh, I think. Did you just say lush? I think like totally right. Yeah. Lush. Yeah, that's not a, a a term I I like to use, but it's definitely applies here. And this is the last song on the old scratch LP, actually. So I definitely think they righted it wrong by putting it first on the SST version. Agreed. Yeah. Uh, the next one's a Cal and Vita song too, The Commissioner. And this is the first song on the original uh, Old Scratch. Good song, but not right for the first song on the album. Um, I think Vita said this is a Cal song with, with his lyrics, Vita's lyrics. I think he says kind of about some of the other Russian revolutionaries around Leon Trotsky. Jamie Lennon's keys are, are pretty subtle, but they really add a lot to this song and the whole record, really, if you're listening. Um all, are you, like on this song, there are those bells, yeah. right? Used to pretty great effect during the turnaround and solo section. Yeah, this song almost, rem- and some of the other songs, almost remind me of something The Damned would have done in the 80s, like Black Album, Strawberries era. And Vetus's voice even has a bit of Davanian qualities when he's in his baritone. I would agree. I just love the the solo section where it's just like picked chords. Yeah. I, lo- I love solos like that, man. Ooh. Yeah, so so good. Uh, the next one is Nightingale Drive, and that's uh, just written by Vetus. I think he calls this a a leftover last orphan. Mm. Um, it is a like a jangly, bouncy song, kind of. Yeah, I, I wrote it's a jaunty pop tune about. I think he says a street off of the Sunset Strip, behind the whiskey, uh, which is kind of what he had in in mind lyrically. You can definitely hear the last doing this one, for sure. 
the the doubled vocals are killer on this and here we go again with uh, the piano accents are really good on this track yeah the next one is big dreams a kale and vita song this is the one with all of the samples of like obnoxious people at a at a photo shoot it's only missing uh you know the weird nightclub guy from the nightclub <laughs> sequence you know <laughs> What's his name from, from Earth? From, Dies Zoog, from Zoog's riff? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Yeah. This is, uh, you know, what are you calling for, Danny, right? Yeah, yeah. That, uh, yeah, I like that part. I, I like it. Uh, you mentioned the doubled vocals. I wrote that for this song, actually, with Vetus an octave up and someone else, maybe Vetus actually, down an octave. It sounds super mm-hmm. cool. Um, the samples actually kept making me of that butthole, think of that butthole surfer song, Sweat Loaf. Oh, yeah. You know, like, what, what, what does regret mean? Yes. Yeah. Kind of uh, at, at the outro for the song, the guitar kind of shifts into a U2, the edge type of gear, which is, it's, it's actually pretty good. I didn't mind it. Yeah. Uh, the next one is Just the End of the World, but written by Kale and Vetus. This is the track I referenced when, when talking about psychedelic and Paisley bands uh, in the interview, which, to be honest, without Jeff and Soraya's podcast, I, I wouldn't necessarily have associated Trotsky with that scene, but it totally makes sense. Um, but I think, you know, similar to The Last or even The Meat Puppets, who had a lot of those same elements as Rain Parade or The Dream Syndicate, they also stand apart. Like they they would have fit a, on a bill with any of those bands, but just as easily with a power pop band or kind of like the burgeoning college rock stuff like REM or, or something like that. Yeah, it's a sleepy, jangly tune, which, you know, and I know this isn't the original sequence, but it's perfectly sequenced on the CD for me. Yeah. Yeah. I like the, the kind of extended groove that feeds, kind of feeds back and goes right into the next song, Drawing Fire. Mm-hmm. So that's a written by John Talley Jones, Kevin Barrett, and Kale Johansson, aka The Urinals, aka Hundred Flowers. You might know a little bit more about this song, Ryan, but um, Drawing Fire is the name of their second One Hundred Flowers EP from '84. But this yep. song is not on it. Looks like they released it on a cassette only comp on Normal Records at some point, but I don't even think that was like for commercial release. It looks like it was just dubbed blank tapes that that Normal sent out as promos. This is not an easily accessible 100 Flowers song. It is not. It yeah. is not. And and you're right, too. I mean, it's not on that EP. It's not even on the re-release of the EP from a couple of years back. Yeah. Very 80s keyboard sound, but it's awesome. Like, it sounds like Devo, or it makes it actually made me think of uh, the theme to Weird Science by Oingo Boingo. Yeah. Well, it's synth bass, right? Yeah. yeah. Weird Science. Um <laughs> Yeah, well, this, it's funny when you read this, it's, you know, eight string bass and keyboard bass, but, but no real, like, you know, dedicated bass player on this record. And I don't miss it a ton. Like I don't notice, I don't notice missing a, missing a bass player on this record. Well, it's like the DC three stuff where Paul Rossler was doing it with his left hand. You, I, not knowing that you probably wouldn't even know that it, it was happening. I know. Yeah. As much as as much as just like in principle, I want to hate synth bass. Um, it works really well on this record, and I agree. It gives me like if I'm going to listen to a record from the '80s, and I'm going to have synth bass, I do want to have like 
an 80s kind of feel to it, like Devo or Oingo Boingo, and it does. Yeah. He mentions this was a showcase for John Frank's drumming, and he sent me a live clip, which he mentions in the interview too, from 86. And when he sent it to me, he titled the email, John Frank in high gear. And he most definitely is. It's rock solid drumming. Uh, he really goes off at the end of this clip, and you, you can see the drum head too in the video, which is sister painted, which is also on the LP label for this this record. And if you're listening on the SST LP, that's the end of the heads side. The next track, Still Set the Time, John Frank and Vetus. This is not on the SST LP, but it's on the Old Scratch LP. I like the, the effect on the guitar. It's, it's got a touch of like chorus or something. Uh, Jamie Lennon's playing kind of sets this apart for me. He's really twinkling the ivories. John's lyrics are kind of abstract. Vita says he didn't really know what, what they were about, and I don't either, but they, they totally work. Yeah, great haunting mid-tempo piano line. And again, these doubled vocals on this record that just make it sound so full. Yeah. Okay, so now we're on, at the start of the Tales side, if, if you're on the LP, and we've got Clowns on Fire, a Vita song. Vitas can really sing. It's a shame he doesn't enjoy it more. Um, and again, like the production on this album is, you know, just a, a great showcase, I would say, for his vocals. Yeah, I have on this one, like I have it on a few tracks about how this record sounds great. This one in particular, I wrote down like, what a great recording. Yeah. The, uh, the piano line. Everything really shines through. Um, and, I, and I wrote here again, and they didn't fall prey to crappy 80s production and like effects and all that kind of crap, you know? Yeah. yeah, well, that goes for all of the Vetus recordings too. They all sound mm. sound great and, and not dated at all. Yeah. Clown on Fire version <laughs> written by Jamie and Vetus. I, I guess this is kind of like a, a take me out to the ball game kind of thing on the on the keyboards with Vetus screaming like a madman and, and then it ends with like this giant sampled sounding splat. I, I like that they printed the lyrics to this on the insert as well. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Well, don't you think the screaming is the clown who is actually on fire? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, the next one is Hit Parade, written by Kale and Vetus. The intro to, to this song, every time I heard it, made me think of the Buzzcock song, Why Can't I Touch It? Oh, yeah, yeah. for sure. It's got that kind of interesting shuffle beat on the drums, yeah. Similar, similarly. Yeah. Vetus actually says in the interview, this one was all about the drums and it definitely has a big drum sound. Um, the, the, the DJ is definitely having a bad day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, hello, I'm your DJ tonight. Going to play some records that might make her puke. Um, this, this one's a total earworm too. Like I had this in my head all week. This one. Uh, Ivory Tower is the next one written by Kalen Vetus. When you listen to this after hear, hearing Vetus talk about the last fan um, with like emotional problems and that was prone to violent outbursts, the lyrics definitely make a little more sense. I really like that kind of Rickenbacker 60s style pick uh, kind of signature riff of this song. Mm -hmm. There's a cool yowl right before the solo section too that just sets it off. Oh yeah. 
And then we go straight into You like, Look Like Something Goya Drew, written by Kale and Vitas. Francisco Goya is a Spanish painter who passed away in 1828. You've definitely seen his paintings, uh, like his one um, titled Saturn, which is what I picture when I, when I had this song title in mind. Um, it's a cool eight-minute jam with Slovenly's Tom Watson laying down some, some noisy solos, which are great. It's on the SST LP cassette and CD versions, but not on the old scratch version. Yeah. It sounds like Tom's guitar is like kind of backwards masked sometimes too. Did you catch that? I did. Yeah. Yeah. And it, and this, this track ends with a, a sudden Yelp as well. Yeah. Yeah. And then we're into the CD. I'm not sure if it's on the SST cassette or not, but it's for sure not on the LP and that's temporary faith rangers. At least I don't think it's on the LP. Maybe it is. Uh, credited to Bronstein. I assume Bronstein is whoever that is, like from the original tapes that they, they used. Was on, yeah. Was uh, on the was probably written on the box or something, hey? Yeah. As the liners to the CD say, the tape we bought for the session hadn't been erased. This is our edited remix of two of the fine commercial jingles we discovered. I like how it starts where it's like, I can read your stupid charts. Just roll it. <laughs> <laughs> Vita's kind of drawling over these jangles like, hey, I'm a session man. I can play in any band. I'm the best at what I do. Play hot licks like you want me to. Yeah, this track is on the SST LP too, by the way. Okay, good. Yeah. I have a couple reviews here, Ryan. Also one from Robert Christigau. He gave it a B plus. Yeah, that's pretty high praise. He says, not a hardcore band, the name's too educated, or an art band either, too politically charged. A pop band, if anything, firming up a lyricism that wouldn't have sounded out of place at the Fillmore in 1967. Mm. With compact structures, foreshortened solos, and a drummer from the metaphorical East Bay. A pop band that regards acts of secretarian vengeance as emblematic, an inescapable environment, if not topic. And then Richard Foss of All Music. The first album made under the name Trotsky Icepick was a masterpiece of wry, literate pop. The trio of Vitas Matare, Kel Johansson, and John Frank was augmented by keyboard player Jamie Lennon, who added jazzy touches to compositions that layered harmonics and guitars with startling sophistication. He talks about the Danny and the Doorknob album. He says it has a live, raw sound. More so than this one, yep. Yeah, and then he says, This one is a beautifully subtle product of the studio. Eric Westfall certainly did an excellent job of recording this album in only two sessions. Yeah, I would agree. The lyrics have a bittersweet quality at times, especially on the haunting Still Set the Time and Just the End of the World. Their later albums rocked harder and had more commercial potential, but on Poison Summer, Trotsky hit a balance between drive and delicacy that is rare in pop music at any time and was extraordinary in a band which came from the L.A. punk scene. Yeah, they've got a really interesting progression. You know, when you talk about that first Danny record, this one, but then Baby, because remember, Baby really sounded post-punk yeah. at, at times, hey? Yeah, I can't wait to hear what came before and, and then after this, which we will, yep, <laughs> soon enough. Uh, amazing cover art from Vetus' sister, Felice. I believe she did multiple Trotsky albums, including some sleeve design on the Baby album. You know, I'm no art historian, but kind of a Picasso version of, of Leon Trotsky getting 
stabbed with the ice pick. Looks like in the mouth. <laughs> uh, and don't quote me on this, Ryan, but I, I believe he was living in exile in Mexico when Stalin ordered his assassination, which I'm guessing is what the cactus and the gecko represent. I don't know if you see this too, but look under Trotsky's chin. Is that the word off? Oh, maybe, hey? I don't know. I think that's a stretch. Maybe. That's a stretch. Uh, produced by Vitas Matari with interference from Kel Johansson. That's what it says. Um, mastered Ryan, but who else? JG at K-Disc. Insert layout and typography by Manfred Hofer of Leaving Trains fame. No dead wax on the SST version. Uh, but there is on the old scratch version. It says on the A side, it says Leon's other earache. And on the B side, it says red hairspray. There you go. Ballot result? Yeah, man. Ballot result. Well, I could pick a few. Like, I don't know. There's, there's. It's not like there's a stinker on the record. I wouldn't obviously put on, you know, temporary Faith Rangers or anything. But almost all the other tracks are just so solid right but i love uh the gaslight the commissioner um set still the time um i'll love clowns on fire too uh the the production on that one is really great and hit parade the rhythm on it excellent yeah my faves were the gaslight just the end of the world clowns on fire and hit parade and it was a toss-up between the gaslight and hit parade for me but i i think the gaslight is just such a killer song we should probably do that one yeah I'm in. And I mean, we're recovering from bad acid. acid. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right? Like that's on the comp tape. We just went through whatever, 14 minutes of suave bad acid. I think uh, the gaslight is a great palate cleanser after that. Big time. Hey, thanks to Vetus for being on the show. It was so awesome having him. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Ryan, what's next week? Next week, Brent, we're going to get Mo Fungo again. It's SST. 240, the Mofungo Work LP, and we've got a special guest. You bet. We've got Willie Klein on the show. Nice. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr, all at Mojack Pod. We post all kinds of info and tons of pictures of the bands and albums we discuss on the show. Our blog is mojackpod.com. Please check it out for some exclusive content. If you like what we do and want to support the podcast, the best way to do that is to tell your friends about the show. Subscribing, rating, and reviewing on iTunes is also appreciated. We love hearing your opinions, corrections, and feedback, so feel free to post on our social media sites and send us an email to mojackpod at gmail.com. Thanks again for all the support, and we hope to see you next week.